your scripture and open them to the book of Habakkuk. It's on page 1456 of the Blue Pew Bible. As you turn there, uh, please bow and pray with me for a brief moment. Lord God, I feel ill-equipped to preach your word, to do the book of Habakkuk, that which you have preserved for us over the millennia justice. I pray, Spirit, that you will speak through me to your people that you love, that are more precious to you than silver and gold. In Jesus' name, amen. In the magazine Fast Company, a chess master and sought-after mentor, Bruce Pandolfini, said the following, My lessons consist of silence. I listen to others teach, and they're always talking. I tell my students, think. I do not ask a question, and I do not get the right answer. I'll rephrase the question And I'll wait. I never give the answer. Most of us really don't appreciate the power of silence. Some of the most effective communication between student and teacher, between master players, takes place in those precious moments of silence. Silence can be an incredibly powerful teacher. Elizabeth Elliot said, silence is the mother of prayer. I love that. As many times, God uses silence in his life, in our lives, doesn't he? Doesn't he use silence? You know, you pray and, and, and you wait and you wait and you pray. How many of you have experienced that silence long enough that it makes you cry out? You have a situation in your life or around the world and you're crying out to God to speak. And he's quiet. That's the situation we have in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk is crying out to the Lord and the Lord has been silent and been silent and been silent. We don't know for how many years or for how long, but it has caused Habakkuk to cry out, look at verse 2, How long, O Lord, must I call out for help, but you do not listen? Cry out to you, violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounding. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Habakkuk has been called the doubting Thomas of the Old Testament. John Phillips writes, it seems to have been, Habakkuk seems to have been more concerned with solving a problem than delivering a prophecy. I hope you read, and I hope you do, read the, these minor prophets before I preach them so that they make more sense, so that the Spirit can do work in your heart before the preaching of the Word. 
But if you did read that, did you get that sense? This is not really a prophecy to anybody. We're kind of going along on a journey with Habakkuk, aren't we? And it starts with this question. It starts with God arguing, if you will, arguing with God. In these four first four verses, God's silence has caused Habakkuk to cry out. In the Hebrew there, there's the imperative sense. Those are all those exclamation points you've seen there. He's crying out to the Lord. He's looking at his home of Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom is gone by now. He's looking at the southern kingdom. He's looking around, and he's wondering if God even cares. He's looking around at the situation, the spiritual temperature of the people, and he's going, Do you even, are you even around God? He's experiencing God's silence and asking the age-old question, God, where are you? Where are you? To understand this question, you really do have to understand a little bit of the time in which Habakkuk is living. He's living in a time of around 600 B.C. That doesn't mean much to anybody. He's living about 20 years after Josiah's reform that we've been talking about in previous weeks. Josiah brought a huge spiritual revival to Judah, to the southern kingdom. He cut down the Asherah poles. He, he tore down the Baal altars, if you remember back. In Zephaniah, he, he brought a fresh wind of spiritual vitality and, and monotheistic love of the one true God, Yahweh, back to Judah, 20 years previous to Habakkuk. He also lived through Nahum's prophecy that we just looked at last week, about 10 years previous to when he cries out here. He saw Nahum's prophecy come true. Nineveh falls. Babylon marches on them, the Babylonians, and destroy Nineveh. And now they are the superpower. He probably mourned Josiah's death just a few years previous when he went out to meet King Necho of, in, uh, of Egypt and died in that battle. He probably mourned the death of that great man. And then he probably, and what he is reacting to here is the king that succeeded Josiah, Jehoiakim, brought back all the things that Josiah had just torn down. And he's looking around at Judah and he's going, for 10 years, Lord. I mean, maybe you and I can, can kind of enter into this with the moral slide that we are on right now and, and have been continuing for, for many years. How long, O oh Lord, are you going to let this go on? When are you going to show up? When are you going to stop this? I know this isn't pleasing to you. Do something. And that is the spirit with which Habakkuk is crying out. He cares. And he sees no signs of God. He sees all of Josiah's work fading away. And what he sees, and what he thinks he sees, is a God who is disinterested and disengaged. And he cries out, 
Why are you so silent? Where are you while all this is going on? This is nothing new. This, this kind of crying out is a familiar refrain. If, if, if you read your Bibles at all, you see this again and again in Scripture. The crying out of, of, of the people of God. In Psalm 10, verse 1, Why, Lord, do you stand far off, the, the psalmist says. Why are you so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's saying the same thing Habakkuk is. David, in Psalm 22, says the same thing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you, God? Why are you so silent? Why are you so disinterested, disengaged, not acting? Uh, The wonderful thing about Psalm 22 is we know that our Savior cried that same thing out on the cross, right? And we know that God is not disengaged there. He's ultimately engaged. And that is what Habakkuk has to learn as God answers him in verses 5 and following. Habakkuk cries out, and and God answers and says, Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, the ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreadful people. They are a law unto themselves and promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong and their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour and all that come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all the fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They will sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their God. Oswald Chambers said some prayers are followed by silence because they're wrong. But some... The silence is there because the answer is bigger than you can comprehend. That's what God is saying here. God breaks his silence and tells Habakkuk that his plans are are much bigger than you can comprehend, dear Habakkuk. He's going to use the Babylonians to punish his own people. The literal translation of verse 5 from the Hebrew is I'm going to do something, and we translate it in your own time, that you would not believe. The, the Hebrew there literally says, I'm going to do something that will make your ears tingle. That they are going to be conquered. That the Babylonians are going to sweep across them. That Judah is going to be judged. That Judah is going to go into exile. And that wasn't the answer that Habakkuk was expecting. That was not the answer he was expecting. We can relate to that because when we pray, when we cry out, we have in mind what God should do, don't we? Okay, I'm going to make this prayer and I'm praying this and this is what you should do, God. Right? We think in our own wisdom, 
And we look at the situation, and, and, and guys, personalize this. Think about a situation in your life where you go, this is the obvious good. Of course that person should be healed of cancer. Absolutely. That's the good. And we can go down the rows and across the aisles, and we can say, yep, that's the good. We know what is the good. We can easily think of what Habakkuk would have been praying for. Can you fill in the blank? Lord, bring back, bring a Josiah. We need a Josiah. We need revival. How many times have we prayed for revival? And do we think in that prayer that we're praying something that is bad? No. We're praying for something that is really good. But God's wisdom is beyond us. His ways are not our ways. And his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are so much higher than our ways are as the heavens are. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. That's what we have here. Habakkuk, like many of us many times, he hears that answer and he goes, what do we do? Oh, okay, I bow to that. I prayed for, for you know, cancer to be healed. God says, no, the person's going to die. What do we do? We kick back. And that's exactly what Habakkuk does here. Look at verse 12. The answer is, the question is, why are you silent? The answer is, I'm going to do something that you you haven't even prayed for. And the Lord, and Habakkuk answers back, O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, you have adorned... Ordained them to punish. Sounds good so far, but then look at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Habakkuk is a little humbled here. He recognizes the sovereignty of God, but he asks another question. He doesn't just settle on that. He asks, okay, God, how could you do such a thing? How could you have those more wicked than we judge us? First Habakkuk says that this doesn't line up with your character. He's actually building an argument. This isn't, this isn't your character, God. Look at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? He's asking, hey, he's actually telling God in the form of a question, light can have nothing to do with darkness. So how are you doing this, Lord? How can you do that? How can you use those who are unholy to judge those more righteous? To say it another way, and this is the way we say it today, how could a good God allow evil? How could a good God allow suffering? But he has another 
It's a compound question, he asks. In the second part of that, in verse 13, he says, Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? How can you use people who are more wicked to punish the less wicked? It would be like hearing God telling us, if I can confuse you theologically a little bit, it would be like God telling us he was going to allow ISIS to conquer America. We go, oh, oh, oh hold on. We, we are better than them. We, we're more righteous than them. I mean, look at what they do. They behead people. Look at how they treat women. Look, look at how they, how they treat the captured peoples. You know, hold it. Sharia law doesn't line up with your law. How can you do that? Hold it. They don't have God on their side. That's the confusing theologically. Put that aside for now. Mm-hmm. Yet they will punish us. <coughs> Habakkuk is confused and decides to wait on God to answer him. He says, stick that in your cap, and I'll wait for your answer. I've got you. And God does answer. Look at verse 2. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. In other words, God's saying, write this down, and this is the answer for all your questions. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks to the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not right. But the righteous will live by his faith. There is the answer. The answer is the righteous will live by faith. If you want to know what Habakkuk's book is all about, that's the verse to underline. The righteous will live by faith. That's the answer. In other words, God is saying, Habakkuk, trust me. Habakkuk, wait, stop. Trust me. Just trust me. That's the answer God gives. I know what I'm doing. We don't like that answer. I don't like that answer. I don't know if you don't like that answer. In this crazy world we live in where God's law has given way to to whatever truth you have is true. You know what God says to that? If that drives you crazy, trust me. Live by faith. I know what I'm doing. In a world where wholesale slaughter of unborn babies is condoned and protected under law, does that make you crazy? You know what God says? Wait. Trust me. In a world where pornography flourishes under the guise of freedom of the press? Does that drive you crazy? If it does, God is saying, the righteous will live by faith. 
Trust me. In a world where homosexuality is, is just an, an orientation, a choice that is actually quite noble, God says, trust me. Wait, I know what I'm doing. In a world where drug trafficking and prostitution and child abuse just continues to proliferate and proliferate, does that drive you crazy? God says, trust me. I know what I'm doing. In a world where having a baby out of a covenant marriage is more the norm than the, than, than the exception, if that tires you crazy, you're starting to enter into Habakkuk's world. And God is saying, trust me, wait, live by faith. In a world that is going crazy, that if we really took time to look at today and keep going, and I have more here which I won't go into, we would go the same, we would say the same thing as Habakkuk. And we're tempted to say, how long, O Lord? And he continues to say, the righteous will live by faith. Trust me. Wait. Now hear me clearly. Trusting God does not mean that you don't say anything. Hear hear this very clearly because you could walk away going, all I'm going to do is say, how long, O Lord, in my prayer closet. That's not what Habakkuk, the book, and what God is saying here. Edmund Burke, the 18th century British politician, famously said, the only necessary thing for evil to triumph is for good men to say nothing. And that is true. We are called, and there's imperative after imperative after imperative in Scripture that says, open your mouth, speak truth, even when it's hard. We can and should be actively involved in pushing forth the truth as found in God's word. Now, when God says, trust me, he's saying that through faith, believers should not lose hope. And that's really what happens. And that's what Habakkuk, where Habakkuk was. He had lost hope. Nancy Guthrie wrote, living by faith is saying, I refuse to allow this difficulty in my short-term future to rob me of long-term hope. We're going to talk about that when we get to chapter 3. Living by faith means that we should not look at the world around us and question God. As quoted earlier, Isaiah 55, the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. If you struggle in this area, if you ask the the same questions Habakkuk is, that would be a great verse for you to hide in your heart and say to yourself when you get tempted to get better towards God. Because that's what will happen. People of God, that's what will happen if you keep asking that question. There will be a bitter root that will begin to grow towards the people that you are identifying as causing the violence for sure, but for God who is saying, trust me, wait. 
a bitter root towards God will begin to grow. If you don't have that humble stance. The question, how can God, a good God allow evil and suffering in the world has drawn many, many, many people away from the faith. Perhaps you know some. I sure do. And if, you've, if you have a good biblical answer for that, I'm all ears. Because I think the biblical answer for that is in chapter 2, verse 4 of Habakkuk. Bitter people towards God hold God accountable to Habakkuk's first and second question and say, if you can't answer those to my satisfaction, forget you. And when he is silent, they walk away. And I want to tell each and every one of you, there will be times in your life where you demand an answer from God. And if you're not prepared for it, you could be a Demas. Paul says, Demas left me, you loved the world. And I love each of you so much, I don't want you to do that. Forget me, the Lord cares for you so much. He wants you to hear this. Anyway. The answer to that question, the answer to the silence is, trust me, live by faith. Live in the gap between promise and fulfillment. Live in that gap. Live in Hebrews 11.1. By faith, being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Live by faith in the promises of God even though they're not fulfilled. By the way, that's Hebrews 11. That's the point of Hebrews 11. And that's what God reminds Habakkuk of in the rest of chapter 2. He tells Habakkuk that Babylon will answer for their sin. God is gracious to to Habakkuk and answers him. That's what the the five woes are all about in Habakkuk. Uh, Verses 6, woe to him. Verses 9, woe to him who builds his realms by unjust gain. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a city. Verse 15, woe to him who, who gives drink to his neighbors. And in verse 19, Woe to him who says to wood, come to life. Or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. Verse 20, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Babylon will answer for the cruelty and covetousness and cults that it has. The Lord is holy in his temple. God is in control. That's what verse 20 is all about. He's telling Habakkuk, I'm in control. Let the whole earth be silent before him. I'm in control. 
And that changes Habakkuk. We don't know the time between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We really don't. But that truth sinks down from here to here. And it changes Habakkuk. Because you can see a change from chapter 1 to chapter 3. And we begin to see what living by faith looks like. And it looks like he begins to accept what God is telling him. Look at verses uh, 1 and 2 in chapter 3. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. The whole chapter is a prayer. And so it's teaching us that living by faith is prayerful living. That's the first thing that we can draw from chapter 3. Living by faith is prayerful living. In 2004, I don't know if you saw the, the remake of the King Arthur legend. Uh, and it was set in a new in, in Roman times, which was interesting. But Lancelot finds his king in one of the scenes. Lancelot finds King Arthur on his knees in prayer. And he asks the question, why do you always talk to God and not to me? Prayer to whomever you pray that we won't cross the Saxons. Arthur says, my faith is what protects me, Lancelot. Why do you challenge this? I don't like anything that puts a man on his knees, Lancelot says. Arthur says, no man fears to kneel before a God he trusts. And so we see Habakkuk on his knees before the Lord. People of God, prayer shows that you trust God. You want to try one of the distillations of prayer? One of the distillations is it's showing that you are, are answering the silence with, I trust you, God. Not my will, but yours be done. That's, that's the, the quintessential prayer, isn't it? I trust you. So you want to know what living by faith looks like? You want to put legs on that? Get on your knees. That's what it looks like. That's what living by faith, trusting God, really looks like. Arthur uh, Ralph Sockman wrote in his book, In the Higher Happiness, we use prayer as a boatman uses a boat hook to pull the boat to shore and not to try to pull the shore to the boat. Not my will, but yours be done. So we see Jesus doing in Gethsemane. A person living by faith is a person that is prayerful. Someone who doesn't try and pull the shore to him. God, do this. Here's what I see as good. Do this. This is so obvious it's logical. Do this. It's allowing him to pull you to his shore, even when there's silence. Lastly, living by faith is joy despite suffering. Is living with joy despite suffering. Look with me at verses 16 and following. 
Habakkuk says, I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nations invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the sheep There are no sheep in the pens and no cattle in the stalls. Yet will I rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Savior. J. Vernon McGee, in his wonderful way, says Habakkuk begins with a question mark and ends with an exclamation point. Picture Habakkuk paints is of losing everything. It's a picture of economic disaster. Those things that he lists there were what you had for worth. Those going to Rwanda will understand this. Being us in America, we don't get this. We have a lot of stuff. If they lost those things, they were done. You were going to suffer. If those things were lost, they would put you into a tailspin. We have all the, those, we've all had those Habakkuk 317 times in our life. To greater and lesser extent, where there are no sheep, there are no cattle, there are no grapes, there are no figs. Those times when the, this fallen world deals us a blow that, that, that we weren't prepared for. How do you live by faith during those periods, the circumstances? The world's answer, the world has answers. You can go to the world for answers. And the world's answers are resignation, detachment, and bravado. Resignation, nothing I can do about it. Detachment, I don't want to think about it. Bravado, don't let it get you down. Those are ways you can approach difficulty in your life. But those aren't honest, are they? They don't acknowledge the pain, they don't acknowledge the loss. Uh, Christianity and, and, and scripture gives us a different path here. Living by faith is acknowledging the loss, verse 17, but remembering what you have been given, verse 18. It's holding those in tension. This is what Horatio Spofford that was, was writing about in the hymn we just sang, It Is Well With My Soul, I hope you, re- you sang that and you were listening to the words you were singing. Because I can't but imagine that, that he had Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18 in mind as he was penning those. If you, know the, um, you probably do know the backstory to that hymn. The Spoffords were a very wealthy family. Four daughters and a young son. And in 1871, the youngest son died. And they were devastated. And then the the Chicago fire happened. And it took away all his wealth. He He was a wealthy landowner in Chicago. Wiped out his wealth. A year after that, recovering from the tragedy of losing their son and losing their finances, he sent his, his wife and his four daughters ahead of him to Europe to try and mend from, from these tragedies, spending some time together as a family. And on the way over, that ship was struck by another one and sank in 12 minutes. 
And Horatio got a telegram from his wife from Europe in 1873 that had two words on it, saved alone. He had lost his four daughters. Gone. With a heavy heart, Spofford boarded a ship that was going to take him to be reunited with his wife. And on the way over on that ship, he penned the words that we just sang. I mean, you have to look at these words and realize that the pain that he is in. So peace like a river attendeth my way when sorrow like sea billows roll. He's probably looking at the sea churning. That Christ has, that whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control, let this truth control me, he's saying, that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well. With my soul, with my soul. It is well, it is well with my soul. He is penning exactly what Habakkuk in God's word is telling us to live by faith, what it looks like through those difficult times. He was remembering what it... He has been given in Jesus Christ. That the loss, while devastating, is not the end. That the circumstances, while real, do not mark the end of life's joy. That our external circumstances, while painful, are not the ultimate barometer of our joy. I want to tell you, if you've given your life to Christ in this room, you're saved. You're saved. You're going to have you're going to have that inheritance, but Satan doesn't stop. He says, "Fine, God can have eternity. I'm going to create circumstances in their life that'll take away their joy." And that's exactly what David was saying when he penned after the death of his own son, "Restore unto me the joy of my salvation." Satan can disable you. And if you're in this room and you trust Christ, that's his whole purpose in life. I'm here to tell you that God does not want that for you. That's why he gave us Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. There's a saying, I cried because I had no shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. You want to know how to restore your joy? Remember the cross. We look at our circumstances and say, no, no sheep, no cattle, no grapes, no figs. What's the circumstance of my life? You know the secret of, of, of retaining joy? Is remember what Christ gave up to, for you. Remember that the last thing he owned in the world was the robe and it was taken from him. At times like that, we have to remind ourselves that Jesus 
replaced his perfect joy with ultimate suffering. He lost everything. If you do that, I love what Alex Grant, the pioneer missionary in China, said. Probably the shortest sermon, and you're probably saying, Lord, I wish I'd heard this sermon instead of this one. Shortest sermon in, in history. He stood up, he read Habakkuk 3, 17 and 18. And he said, what could the devil do with a man like that? And sat back down. And that's true. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And I implore you, Spirit, to change our hearts through the word. In Jesus' name, amen.